Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 14th, 2019. On this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast, we will be recapping the 2019 Chicago White Sox outfielders. Boy, this unit is still a mess. After they were the worst unit in all of baseball in 2018, the only real progress the White Sox outfield made was thanks to Aloy Jimenez's bat and Lurie Garcia's extended playing time. The hope we have, chiming on from the past years, is arriving thanks to Luis Robert. But there is a good chance that after all the talk and hype of the White Sox outfield prospects the last couple of years, it just might be Luis Robert that makes his way to Chicago. That means Rick Hahn still has to figure out who plays in right field. And we'll bounce ideas off Patrick Nolan's head as he'll join me later in the show to recap the White Sox outfielders and look ahead to the 2020 White Sox outfielders. Of course, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox later in the show. I was on vacation last week, so I missed a few news items about the White Sox. Plus, we are two games into the championship series in both the National and American Leagues. So let's get started. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox have themselves a new hitting coach. They do. And it's the hitting coach we thought they would hire, Frank Menachino. Yeah. Shocker, right? Yeah. It's uh... (laughs) a... Like, like I wrote about, it reminded me a lot of how the White Sox settled on, on Rick Renteria as manager, hiring a guy for a lesser position, but also maybe hiring him to kind of interview him for a full year and get an idea of what he's all about and how he works with people and what people say about him. And uh, when the year is over and you think, uh, I guess, maybe in anticipation of making a change above him and 
Uh, you know, just like with Renteria, the White Sox really didn't seem like they felt they had to interview outside of the organization. So Manichino it is. For me, there are two areas specifically that I'm looking at to see if Manichino can make an immediate impact on the White Sox in 2020. One, can he help Luis Roberts transition from AAA to the majors and lessen that mm-hmm. adjustment period? Two, can he help make Zach Collins useful? I think with Mikata, Anderson, Jimenez, and if he comes back, Abreu, they all have a good idea after the season what they need to do to be successful at the plate. McCann, let's see if 2019 wasn't a fluke. But if Medikino, Jim, could help Roberts transfer be smoother, adjusting to the league, than what we've seen from past White Sox rookies. And if he could help Zach Collins, those two bats could help lengthen the White Sox lineup. In what areas are you focusing on to see if Menachino can provide immediate impact replacing Todd Steverson? Yeah, that's one of the things I thought when you, you mentioned Collins and, and Roberts, and I would add maybe Nick Madrigal too. And uh, you have a you know handful of players who succeeded under Menachino, or at least uh, you know whether you can say Menachino helped him, or whether he just sat back and watched and observed and saw what they did well and saw what they're vulnerable to. He has a pretty good understanding firsthand uh, experience with these guys as they try to make the transition to the major. So yeah, that's, I think a big selling point for him. And, and the fact that Charlotte hit so, uh, you know, Charlotte hit so well. And part of that's the weird hitting environment at Charlotte, the, the rabbit ball, plus the really small uh, dimensions of the park. But, you know, when you look at Charlotte's performance, they also had a really high walk rates, which, you know, partially is attributable to, Guys like Zach Collins being there, partially attributable to, um, you know, that that very scary hitting environment to where pitchers might be more careful and nibble more and, and not want to give in to certain hitters. But, you know, when you, when you look at the rest of the White Sox organization up and down the chain, you know, you can't really sneeze at a higher walk rate, even if you think there might be some built-in advantages that helped them have that. They just, the White Sox, whether it's at the major league level or at the farm, they really have a hard time drawing walks above the league average. So when you see Charlotte doing that and you see Minakino there, you think, yeah, it's worth worth seeing if there's any difference, uh, you know, year over year at the major league level. But I, I think it's more, you know, when it comes to hitters and, and drawing walks, it is a byproduct of a, a good plate approach. Like somebody like Tim Anderson isn't going to draw walks the way Avi Garcia never drew walks. Maybe Moncada can, Collins can, if he can prove he can hit. Um, Robert, I think, will be along the lines of Anderson, uh, early on magical. I think we'll have to prove he can punish pitches enough to draw walks, but there should be some guys doing it. But uh, when it, when it comes to the walk rate rising, I think it's going to have to see if there's, you know, uh, you know, guys like Eloy Jimenez and, you know, Jose Abreu, if he comes back tapping into their discipline a bit more and not expanding so much. Do you think he can make an impact on those players? I, I don't think that he can because of their ability and how well they hit this year. And maybe with Jimenez, cause he's still young with Jose Abreu. I just feel like with the veterans, they know what they need to do to be successful, especially a hitter like Abreu who's been successful now for six seasons in the major leagues. But do you think Medikino can help them make the adjustments? Yeah, I think Jimenez, you know, is a different case than Abreu. As I mentioned, Abreu has a very rich history of producing in the majors. Uh, even before, you know, when he was considered the best you know, hitter in the world when he was kind of a mystery in Cuba, you know, that that's the kind of situation where you just, you know, sit back and let Abreu be Abreu and hope that his, uh, you know, his decline phase doesn't really just uh, team up with his lack of plate discipline or his, his, his tendency to expand the zone and just uh, team up to clobber him. But with Jimenez, you know, I, I, I think, uh, 
Um, you know, he had a lot of learning that he did this year and, and a lot of, you know, probably more failing than he's ever done, at least for, uh, you know, in, in professional baseball. So I, when it, when it comes to the, um, you know, overall state of his game and hitting approach, I think he learned what he can't do and, and maybe what he can't do, uh, at the major league levels that he could do before. And he's filed that away. So I think there will be more walks for him. They started to show up a bit later in the year. Uh, Moncada, the same thing. You know, he drew walks, uh, and when he proved that uh, his ability to hit strikes early in the count wasn't going away. So that there are some avenues to improve, but there will need to be some outside acquisitions that help that number, number because, yeah, Abreu isn't going to change. Anderson isn't going to change. Uh, Madrigal, you know, and so forth. You go, you go around the uh, diamond, and there are a lot of guys who you just can't count on drawing you know, maybe more than 30, 35 walks a year. I'm good with this hire. How about you? Your overall feeling about Medicino now taking over as hitting coach? I would call it a pretty good outcome for a pretty bad approach. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the approach does suck. I, I wish I wish they hired more and, and, and wish they, you know, took advantage of other teams doing things better and, and get more outside intel, you know, for how successful teams do it. But... You know, Manichino does have a track record with Miami. He had a he had a weird history with Miami. Um, he was the hitting coach for the first couple of years, and then Je- Jeffrey Loria decided to hire Barry Bonds as the hitting coach, and so Manichino got knocked down to assistant, and he spent the rest of his time as assistant. But his time really meshed up nicely with guys like Christian Yelich and uh, Giancarlo Stanton and, and and JT Realmuto, Marcelo Zuno. So I mean, like yeah, their their arrivals timed up well with Manichino's and. You know, you can either say that he helped them or he didn't get their way, but either way, you know, they turned into the best outfield in the majors. So, uh, you know, it's certainly nothing against him. Yeah, I just wish that they were they weren't so confident in their own evaluation abilities because it really hasn't um, shown up for them elsewhere. Well, they did do extensive outside interviewing for Todd Steverson as they interviewed six candidates when they before they hired on Todd Steverson. Uh, back in 2000, before the 2014 season, uh, they interviewed more hitting coaches when they were going through the hiring process for Todd Steverson than they did for manager uh, for a while. Their, their last two managers. <laughs> well, how many people did they interview before they landed on Ozzy? Huh. No, I think that was, I'm not sure if there were interviews or if it was just Ozzy and Kenny hashing it out. Okay, so are we really talking about the White Sox not going through an interview process in more than 15 seasons for even their manager spot. I'm not confident about Ozzy, but I know there were no uh, interviews with Ventura. There were no interviews uh, for anybody else. Yeah. Renteria. So at least those two Ozzy, I'm not sure what the order was, but I know once the story is once Ozzy and Kenny talked uh, face to face, they basically knew they had their guy. Okay. So I think it's worthwhile to look back before the 2004 season and uh, and see if there were any rumors that the White Sox did actually interview anyone because around Major League Baseball, I mean, the Chicago Cubs sat down with Joe Girardi for eight hours and then followed up with sitting down with David Ross for four hours. You know, other teams are having very extensive interview processes. Uh, the White Sox don't have that, <laughs> but they decide to promote internally, and I think that's a good way to put it, Jim, that it's a pretty good result for a pretty bad process, and... 
Again, for a lot of the faults with the White Sox, it's because of their process. But hopefully Frank Mankino can uh, can help as far as with the White Sox bats. They can be more productive in 2020. He can make the transition for Luis Roberts smoother from AAA to the majors. And we could see some immediate impact right away for the White Sox. So that's news item number one. News item number two is in the broadcast booth. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, CBS Sunday Morning had an excellent feature about Jason Bedetti that I highly recommend finding the video online to watch. The news, though, isn't about Benetti. It's about Benetti's partner, Steve Stone. Stone, we found out from a feature piece about his status on the Chicago Tribune and his own Twitter account, is a broadcast free agent. Now, Jim, I'm thinking that Steve Stone is coming back. He's an he's still an excellent analyst, and how do I put this kindly? He still thinks highly of the team, and he does a good job defending the organization publicly. And if he's not broadcasting with the White Sox next season, I have no doubt he latches on with another broadcast booth in 2020. What do you think happens to Stone? I think he stays. Um, it, it is strange that he's not under contract just because that would seem to be a pretty easy one just based on you know his body of work he's he's doing a pretty good job now I, I think you know at the end of the hawk harrelson uh era or at least before the hawk harrelson to jason benetti transition started happening and you know stone wasn't a good use of his skills his talent he was mailing it in uh, he just felt like there you know what he said wasn't valued and so if the white Sox went a different direction after that or or, or during that position uh time i wouldn't have thought anything of it really um, this time around, it's odd. You know, he seems to like working with Jason Benetti an awful lot. Uh, uh, I, I think the Benetti stone combination is revered around the game or envied by some, uh, by some teams when you hear about, uh, you know, how much the people enjoy listing Benetti and, and people talking of stones, uh, I guess resurgence, but, um, it reminded me the last time, you know, when, when stone was talking about his future in the broadcast booth and that was towards the end of hawks time before the transition happened and stone kind of let it dangle out there and i think part of it was uh trying to put some pressure on the broadcast booth arrangement to make some changes because they both admitted that it wasn't working that it was cold and distant there wasn't any chemistry they both didn't seem to enjoy it and were just doing it because of jerry reinsdorf or personal pride or something but uh, you know, they eventually had some heart-to-heart talks and it improved a little bit. Uh, part of it makes me wonder if he just likes, uh, you know, dangling it out there and, and, and uh, you know, letting his situation, you know, I guess, be known and, and get plenty of feedback that wants him there. And whether it's for public leverage or just because he likes hearing compliments about himself, you know, one way or another, just it seems like uh, there are some parallels between his last situation and this one to where uh, he doesn't mind saying it. Again, I think he's coming back. I don't know where else he would go, though, if the White Sox don't sign him. There are some thinking that could the Cubs sign him and be part of their new marquee network. And I would find that to be interesting. If he doesn't come back to the White Sox, if he went back to the Chicago Cubs, which that's where I remember listening to Steve Stone in the first place. What would you think if that actually did happen, that the Cubs came by and said, you know, Steve, we're hopping onto a new TV network, and we want to pair you with Len Casper. Do you think he would jump ship to go from broadcasting White Sox games to broadcasting Cubs games? It doesn't seem like it. One, because you know he's been, I guess, talking a little bit of, of uh, 
you know, he's been talking up the White Sox. He's been, I guess, talking up or, or, or I guess like contrasting that to his time with the Cubs. And uh, so there's that. It would also be weird based on the amount of loyalty that Jerry Reinsdorf fosters and the amount of defending that Stone has done for Reinsdorf on Twitter. Um, it would be weird if he suddenly didn't bout face and jump to <laughs> the rival cable network in town that would be a little bit unusual and, and off-brand for a White Sox employee and, and somebody especially so outwardly uh defensive of Reinsdorf so that would be, that would really surprise me and and yeah I guess nothing should be all that surprising because we don't exactly know what Marquis lineup is going to look like and I guess how intent they are and forcing some hands with some maybe splashy hires but um you know given the loyalty involved and uh, Stone's place and the the White Sox, you know the overall White Sox picture in this whole upswing they're they're trying to complete. Um, yeah, I I would be pretty shocked. All right, so let's move over to what's happening around Major League Baseball. There are a lot of interviews going on for the vacancies at manager, but with the championship series, this was a very interesting note that I read from Jason Stark's column in the Athletic. The last 12 teams to win the first two games of a championship series on the road have all went on to win that series. So great news for the Washington Nationals. If they if that trend continues, they are going from possibly losing the wild card game, loot down three to one in the eighth inning before storming back, thanks to Juan Soto and Trent Grisham misplaying the grounder to the Nationals beating the Brewers four to three, uh, to possibly to the World Series. And uh, we are recording this as the Yankees and Astros are playing game two, but the Yankees have already won game one, and that's pretty big for them before both those teams head to the Bronx for three straight games. But, you know, one thing that I find very interesting, Jim, is that the last couple of years when we've talked about the postseason, our conversations have really been focused on the bullpen because managers have been quick to pull starters and immediately go to the bullpen to try to leverage T-top as far as give hitters different types of looks and make hitters uncomfortable as possible. Except for this postseason, Jim, Mm -hmm. it seems that starting pitching is back in vogue. Yeah, and it definitely makes it more watchable uh, that uh, when the Rays are trying to pull out of the stops to to rally uh, against Houston, that was, I guess, a taste of the, you know, last year's postseason and maybe a little bit before that where just it was matchup after matchup after matchup, so many pitching changes, so many advertisements. And after watching starting pitching dominance around it and, and watching, uh, you know, offenses get stifled, it was a little bit, uh, yeah, it was a little bit off-putting, I suppose, you know, having that kind of matchup. I do welcome the starter dominance, even if it can be a little bit boring at times. Well, Garrett Cole is making himself so much money. Yeah. And he's going to start game three at the Bronx. And if he can continue to do what he's been doing this postseason on the road in New York on perhaps the biggest stage in all of Major League Baseball, man, if he dominates the Yankees in game three, all anyone's going to be talking about in New York and probably rest around the country is what do the Yankees have to do to sign Garrett Cole in the offseason? I thought... Seven years, $245 million would be a deal that could sign Garrett Cole. But every time he makes a postseason start, Jim, I wonder if that offer would be too light, even though it would break every record in free agency as far as terms of total amount signed and year signed and the annual average value of the deal. 
Uh, he, he's just been absolutely terrific. And in the Washington Nationals are in the position that they've been in because the first two games of the series, uh, they had a no-hitter going into the seventh inning. Uh, great strategy if you could pull it off. Anibal uh, Sanchez. Yeah, where did that come from? He was terrible with the Tigers in 2016 and 2017. I thought he was toast, and he's posted back-to-back three-war seasons for the Braves and the Nationals. And here he is taking a no-hitter through eight innings in game one. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, that's the kind of uh, success story I like because it's not pure power and velocity and, uh, you know, the kind of arms race and training and so forth that you could just see baseball, you know, you know, when it comes to power, both pitching and hitting, you just see it like reaching this asymptote to where it's unsustainable one way or another. Someone's got to give, but then you have a guy like Sanchez come along who doesn't blow, you know, he doesn't, uh, you know, have the kind of Garrett Cole or Verlander stuff where he's throwing nineties, just he's shaping pitches and staying off the barrel. And it's really remarkable to see him figure it out after, like you mentioned, he looked done <laughs> and, uh, Tigers fans are certainly not enjoying it. Another item from the championship series, Adam Eden is making an impact old friend, uh, in game one, he had a crucial triple late in the game and scored a insurance run. And in game two, he came up with a two RBI double to help pad the Nationals lead. And in the National League Division Series against the Dodgers, he was 3-for-12 at the plate. And it appears to be the Nationals are finally getting some value out of their trade that they made with the White Sox for Adam Eden, Jim. Yeah, it, it's been lackluster. I think he's helped a little bit. So, you know, it's given him some outfield depth as they moved on from Bryce Harper. He's, you know, he hasn't taken advantage of the home run barrage that so many other players have. And that's, he's, his numbers look a lot like his White Sox numbers. It's just when the context is every other uh, hitter in the league, basically setting a personal best in homers, Eaton's numbers don't really stand out, but he's basically the same guy, just defense a little bit worse. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, I, 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 this year, I spent a lot of time realizing why people were uh, annoyed by Eaton in Chicago. Just you know, some of the quotes he had and reactions. And uh, he didn't really uh, cover himself in glory when it came to speaking for the club. But he's still a decent ball player. And uh, you know, the, the contact is important in the postseason. He doesn't strike out a ton. He can uh, run a little bit. And yeah, it, it's... The White Sox trade just, you know, it always looked like it was going to be like a steal just because he had Reynaldo Lopez looking like a starter and, uh, you know, Lucas Giolito having an encouraging first year. But ever since that, their their White Sox debuts, they haven't had a, you know, two pitchers successful in the same year, unless you count Dane Dunning in the minors. But, you know, Lopez a good year. Giolito was awful. The following year, Giolito was an ace. Lopez looks like he's a back-of-the-rotation guy at best. So, uh, you know, it's not a clear win for the White Sox yet, even though it is a decent, you know, if nothing else, if it's Giolito and uh, Lopez is man and Dunning never quite clicks, it's still a decent trade just because it, uh, um, you know, pushes the, uh, I guess, most affordable years of team control a little bit in the White Sox favor as they rebuild. But uh, they hadn't quite locked it up yet, and now the uh, Nationals are showing some fight. And if Eaton's a key piece of a Nats team that goes all the way, um, you can, you know, just like with the Chris Sale deal, uh, you can say that the Nats got what they wanted out of it. So it's not, uh, right. you know, it might be win-win in the end, but uh, the Nats haven't lost it yet. Oh, and to uh, follow up on the Ozzie Guillen thing, uh, I did find an article that said that along with Guillen, the White Sox interviewed Terry Francona, Cito Gaston, and Buddy Bell. That was from the Sun-Times in 2011. All right. So it's been a while since he even had a an extensive managerial 
interview search. Yeah, but uh, yeah, at least that one. So it's only been two managers, not uh, three. All right. And uh, that Terry Francona guy, I mean, he had a decent career. Yeah, the White Sox did well in that one. So yeah, that's the case where uh, the White Sox could have had Francona again you know, when they hired Ventura. But uh, right. yeah, that's kind of what the Angels are doing or at least trying to do with Brad Ausmus. Like, uh, you know, Fr- Francona might not have been available the year that the White Sox hired Ventura because he was coming off a bad divorce with the Red Sox and maybe wanted to sit a year out. But, uh, you know, the the Angels hired Ausmus and then... Uh, Presuming you know Joe Madden's in the picture, um, you know, they they let go of Osmus and and you know, the White Sox could have done the same, but they believed in Ventura. Don't yeah. That that's that's history, but yeah, they had two shots at hiring Francona, and they could have had both Guillen and Francona. But there you go. Well, let's move over to another topic that I find very interesting while watching the postseason, and that again is about the ball itself. Rob Arthur, who writes for Baseball Prospectus and The Reiner and in the past 538 Sports, very analytical baseball writer, noticed that the ball is acting differently in the postseason, suggesting that the ball's drag spiked suddenly just as play began in October. And this led to Ben Lindenberg of The Reiner writing about the possible ball differences this postseason. And it's led to the St. Louis Cardinals publicly confirming from their analytics department that the ball is traveling on average four and a half fewer feet than it was in the regular season. So, Jim, one, do you think the baseball has actually changed again for the postseason? And if you do, why would Major League Baseball change the ball itself during the postseason, it seems like it's different just from watching it and watching hitters' reactions and watching pitchers' reactions and watching outfielders' reactions. Um, it's you know just from the center field camera watching balls go off the bat and thinking things are going to fly farther than they are. Even even not like balls caught on the warning track, but even ones that don't quite get to the warning track. I've I've been surprised a lot, and I'm trying to sort that out from you know what I've read versus what I'm watching, and and you know maybe my mind is knowing that there's something weird going on and that's coloring it a little bit, but uh, it has been a little bit weird. And I noticed that I think it was JJ Cooper for baseball America. It's either him or Josh Norris talking about how they heard from AAA hitters and people around AAA baseball that the ball there had changed over the last month and it wasn't flying as much. So it could be, you know, a new production cycle could be a, you know, I guess maybe a different production production cycle when, when, manufacturing postseason balls with you know postseason labeling and everything like that it doesn't seem like quality control is uh is very standardized with the with the baseball and i think you know when it, when it comes to the juice ball i don't know how much is um you know intentional and just how much is a very clumsy transition from you know having you know, the process somebody else's problem to overseeing it themselves and not really having a great uh, just understanding of how to get the ball they want and keep it that way. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't uh, don't attribute to malice what you could attribute to incompetence. I'm not sure which way it goes, but it is a little bit weird. And it is a little weird that, you know, the baseball major league baseball took so long to admit that the ball was juiced in the first place. And now you can't really trust them when they say it's the same and within the standard deviation of baseball behavior, because they've been proven wrong in that before. It's just very odd because they own the company to make the baseballs. Yeah. And people would say, well, this is a conspiracy theory. 
there's better pitching in the postseason. Maybe that's what's attributing to it. But no, this is the actual physics on how the baseball is reacting. And if a team has publicly came out and said that, yeah, the ball's traveling four and a half feet, uh, fewer feet than it was in the regular season, think about every single fly ball that's going to the warning track right now. And imagining if that that ball traveled four and a half feet further, would we be seeing higher scoring games? Would we be not talking about starting pitching back in vogue because starting pitchers would be pulled earlier because they're giving up home runs earlier in the game. It's very odd on why baseball would even suggest changing the ball itself just for the postseason. Um, but that's something to consider. And I'm sure fans up in Minneapolis are using that as a reason why the <laughs> twins did not win a postseason game again. But Jim and I will reconvene later in the show as we'll answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. But coming up next on the Sox Machine Podcast, I'm joined by Patrick Nolan to recap the 2019 Chicago White Sox outfield and look ahead to see who could be roaming in the grass in 2020. I know it's baseball season, but many of us are gearing up for fantasy football. Some of you might be like me and you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. Just recently, I made a new website to track our standings and all of our past champions, which if you want to check out, you can go to DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops like me, no worries. They have a lot of website examples you can use for a variety of topics like a blog, or your photography, weddings, and even small business options. Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice they have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create our standings and allow our other participants in the league to track their progress. They also have other built-in tools like storage and custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools you can use to get your website found easily on Google. And every site is automatically optimized for any device. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your business, share your talents to the world, or like me, create a website for our fantasy football league. Whatever you're dreaming of, you'll need a website and Wix can help. Get started by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. The Chicago White Sox outfield overall in 2019 was worth 0.9 war, according to Fangraphs. Aloy Jimenez was worth 1.9 war and Lurie Garcia was worth 1.3 war. So you may ask, how in the world was the White Sox outfield overall worth less than one war, according to Fangraphs. Well, Daniel Polko is worth negative 1.3 war, so that erases Lurie Garcia's value. John Jay was worth negative 0.9 war, and you add up Charlie Tilson, Ryan Cordell, and Nicky Delmonico to the mix, and then, yeah, you could see how the overall unit was below one war in 2019. And just like in 2018, the Chicago White Sox outfield was the worst in Major League Baseball, again, according to Fangraphs. Will 2020 be any different? Well, Luis Robert will be coming, but there's still a big hole in right field that needs to be addressed. 
So let's dish out some grades and look ahead to 2020. And joining me is a fellow editor at SoxMachine.com. It's Patrick Nolan. But in these parts, we know him as Pinoles. And hello, Pinoles. Thanks for coming back on the show again. Hey, Josh. Always a great time. Glad to be here. All right. So let's again remind everyone on how the format will go as far as dishing out grades. I'll mention the player. Pinoles will deliver the grade that he gave for that player. Again, you could already read Pinoles' reaction to the White Sox players and pitchers on SoxMachine.com. And we'll also share the grade that you, our listeners and fans, gave in the Sox Machine 2019 season review survey. And uh, we'll follow it up with some questions about looking ahead to 2020. So let's start with the good news, because we try to be positive around here at Sox Machine uh, Penals. So let's start with uh, Aloy Jimenez. What grade did you give Aloy for his rookie campaign? I, uh, before, and I'll preface this. My grades, I, I consider an average grade to be somewhere on the C plus C borderline. Uh, just to, I try to make sure there's an even amount of denominations on each side of average. And I said, I give Aloy Jimenez a B, which I consider to be a good grade. Um, you know, in aggregate, I don't think that um, a, you know, a standard veteran player that had his season would deserve a B, but I gave Aloy a B for the, for the amount of growth that he showed over the course of the season. Uh, at the beginning, I think everyone remembers he was being preyed upon by sliders. It was merciless. And then I think, um, you know, possibly with the help of Jose Abreu and getting him an iPad, uh, he started to learn to, to prep a little bit more for uh, posing pitchers. Um, his numbers market started to improve before his injury. And then, um, you know, the injury, I think, set him back a little bit. But um, by the time he got to September, I, I think his slugging percentage was over 700 in September, which is great. Um, and, and by the end of the year, you could kind of see this guy that we all thought we were hoping we were going to get. Um, and he, he looks like a, a legit middle of the order bat going forward. And, you know, he gave us a September to dream on, and that's really exciting. So that that's kind of what got, went into that B grade. Yeah, Aloy Jimenez finished the year with 31 home runs, 79 RBIs. His slash line was 267 with a 315 on base percentage, and he ended up slugging 513. I think the good sign is Pinos, he found a way to finish the year with a 116 weighted runs created plus. At a time for a very lengthy part of the season, he was below 100. And that was a bit concerning for me because obviously the defense is going to be lacking. And all of his value is going to be in the bat. But for him to go from somewhere at 94 weighted runs created plus in early August and to finish at 116 to be 16% better than league average hitting-wise, I agree with you, is a, is a very positive sign and has me excited about 2020. Our fans, listeners, 569 responses again. 72.4% agree with you, Pinoles. They gave him a B with 14.2% giving him a C and 13.4% giving Jimenez an A. Nobody gave Jimenez lower than a C grade for the 2019 season. So let's look ahead to 2020. What are the realistic expectations that fans can have for Aloy Jimenez next year? Well, I think you're going to—he is one of the pre, the premier breakout candidates of all in Major League Baseball. I think that you're going to see—I um, just think you're going to see the batting average come up a little bit. Hopefully, as he becomes more patient with these breaking pitches off the plate, the walks will go up. Because um, he, he didn't walk a tremendous amount, and he really didn't in the minor leagues either. But um, I think that pitchers are going to start to see him as a force to be reckoned with. And 
Um, I, I think he's going to be a guy, and granted the defense is going to hold him back, and I think that's always going to be reflected in um, you know these, these war metrics from, from baseball reference fan graphs. I think that you know that's going to hold down his value a little bit, but you could see a guy next season who starts pushing into like the, the, the 3.0 to 5.0 war territory, depending on you know how things go. And um, I, I think that it is it's never a safe bet, but I think that he's a, a very strong bet to be an above-average contributor next year, and, and that's going to go a long way towards determining whether the White Sox contend. So from left field, let's move over to center field. And Lurie Garcia spent the most time in center field for the White Sox in 2019. What grade did you give Lurie Garcia for his 2019 season, Pinos? Um, I believe I believe I had him somewhere around the C plus range. Um, I think that he was, uh, you know, you know, roughly average. I mean, his his contributions actually tailed off a little bit as the year went on. I think he started out very good, and then. Uh, you know, he just wasn't able to sustain it over the course of a full season. Um, it, it, that's kind of the profile of a bench player. I, it sounds like a bench player. It's because it probably is. Um, he, he's not really meant to be an everyday starter at any one position, but as a guy who can fill in at so many different positions and give you adequate defense and, you know, not having you push the panic button because somebody gets hurt. I, I think he's a very valuable player. And I, you know, once the white Sox um, are in a position where they can give him that role and just allow him to um, give the manager flexibility and not have to be in the lineup every day. Um, I, I think that he's going to flourish in that role. Um, but, you know, he, he did, I think that being charged with a full-time role in center field, um, at least, uh, you know, he was healthy for the vast majority of the year. Um, he did about as well as you could reasonably have expected. So um, definitely a, a solid season from Leary, and uh, hopefully he'll, uh, he'll thrive in a, a reduced role going forward. But you have him on your roster next season. Uh, I, I do. I, I just think a guy like him gives you a lot of flexibility, and he, he's definitely – um, you know, for the price that he's going to fetch in arbitration, I, I think that you're kind of it, it's kind of challenging to turn that down, given what he can do on the field, given the fact that he can play, play defense. He seems to be able to hit at a decent enough clip to justify playing in the lineup every so often. And, you know, with, the, with another roster spot being added next year, granted, that, that takes a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the advantage of the flexibility. It kind of reduces how important that is. But at the same time, um, you know, you're going to have an extra position player on the roster and, you know, how are you going to find somebody better than him to, to fill that extra role? Those are really good points. I think for Louis Garcia, for me, he could be the White Sox starting second baseman on opening day. If the White Sox don't call up Nick magical to join the 26 man roster right away. Uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a possibility as well. I mean, we'll see what they think about Danny Mendick or whether they, um, I, I think they're going to non-tender Yolmer Sanchez, but I, I, there's no, I there's, a, there's a non-zero chance that they bring him back for less. But but you know that's a good point. I mean, one thing you can do with Larry is is pencil him in as the opening day second baseman and just kind of wait until um, I, I don't know what which cutoff the White Sox are shooting for, whether it's the seventh year of um, you know the seventh year of control or whether it's um, you know not having him be a super two player. Um, whatever they do with Nick Madrigal, I think Leary is a, a perfectly fine stopgap until that happens. All right. So for the rest of the White Sox outfielders, maybe we'll just do this in rapid fire succession um, because it, <laughs> there, there's there's a bit of a drop off, let's say. Uh, so the next outfielder that's on the list after Leary Garcia is Charlie Tilson. What grade did you give Charlie Tilson for his 2019 season? I, I gave I gave Charlie Tilson an F. Um, Charlie Tilson. He hit the ball. It seemed like he was hitting the ball a little harder than he did last year, but 
the strikeouts started to pile up. I think he was taking more aggressive swings, and as a result, he wasn't making as much contact. Um, but granted, neither version of Charlie Tilson merits higher than an F, so um, that was an F. <laughs> yeah, this was a bit of a surprise. Our fans and listeners, 49.7%, so almost 50% of the survey, uh, gave Tilson a D, with 34.6% giving Tilson enough so probably closer to d minus um but a little bit more positive from the fans listeners on charlie tilson than i thought uh how about john jay what grade did you give john jay for his 2019 season well uh john jay's play i mean he for a while he was like a brush of he was a breath of fresh air he gave the Sox a decent amount of confidence out in right field um, for a while, he was sitting over 300, and then in August, he hit one of the worst months that I've ever seen any player have in a White Sox uniform. And you know, when out when that was said and done, he he pretty much nuked his major league career, and uh, you know, he he wound up with an F. But one thing we have to remember is that Josh, that Josh is that uh, John Jay was acquired to help lure Manny Machado to Chicago, um, and when viewed in that light, he also deserves an F. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 57.6% of our survey uh, results gave John Jay an F. 31.3% gave him a D. If that's a D, what in the world? <laughs> Give me a break. What's an F if that's not an F? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Another surprise, maybe everyone was trying to not be so mean for the rest of the White Sox outfielders. What grade did you give Ryan Cordell for his 2019 season? No, I stuck with F. <laughs> he, um, he he failed to stand out in any aspect of the game. I think that there were a couple of defensive metrics that smiled upon him favorably, but it, it you know it certainly wasn't unanimous. And you know when I watched him out there, I wasn't really blown away by his defense. I I think that there's um you know th- these these metrics have different opinions for different reasons, and I think that the guys who are true studs are going to shine through in all of them. Um, and Cordell, you know, he didn't really stand out at the plate in any way. I think at the beginning of the season, he seemed like he was, you know, maybe going to be an answer because he, he came on for, for a small sample. I know he had a big game in Cleveland and, you know, for a while he looked like a, you know, at least uh, somebody who could provide us a little bit of a spark, but, uh, you know, wound up never not really happening. And I don't think it's a particularly low F. I think it's kind of a high F, but an F nonetheless. 47.6% of our listeners gave Ryan Cordell a D with 27.8% giving him an F and 23.4% giving him a C. Huh? Different level expectations for Ryan Cordell than us penals. <laughs> How about Daniel Polka? What grade did you give Daniel Polka for his 2019 season? Well, he, he was actually below my cutoff for plate appearances. So I didn't review him in particular, but I don't think there's anything. I, I don't think you can give him any grade, but an F. I mean, yeah, I'm glad that he had a nice little uh, resurgence in the last you know week or two of the season where he started uh, getting a few hits. He had the game where he knocked a couple out of the park, and um, I think that was cathartic for him, probably for White Sox fans as well. But ultimately, I don't think even Polka himself could fight the grade of F. Yeah, 86.6% of our survey uh, participants gave Daniel Polka an F. And then last uh, is, da- is Nikki Delmonico. For his 2019 season, what grade would you give Nicky Delmonico? I'm sure he didn't meet your cutoff for plate appearances, but if he had, what grade would you give Nicky for his 2019 season? I mean, he, he's got to be an F, too. I mean, you know, the, the defense was never there, and it, it was clear last season that, that Nicky was going to need to survive on the merit of his ability to get on base. 
Um, it, it wasn't as prominent as it was in uh, you know, previous seasons, and I think that um, you know that, that stinks. You know, he just didn't he just didn't deliver as much as we hoped he could. So he, um, yeah, he's he's got to be an F two because I mean he's he's out of the organization now. <laughs> so it goes from B for Eloy Jimenez, C plus for Louis Garcia, and then five straight Fs, <laughs> which is uh, which is pretty much what I have as well for my grades. I have Eloy Jimenez B minus and Louis Garcia B minus, and then Fs down the list. Okay, so let's look ahead to the 2020 season. And I these next stats are for every player that played this position during the 161-game season for the White Sox in 2019. For the White Sox in center field, they hit 16 home runs, drove in 52 runs. They had a slash line of 264 with a 307 on base percentage and slugged 392. And they had 13 stolen bases. This is the baseline that Luis Robert is going to try to approve upon in 2020. Two part question for you, Penals. One, are you confident that he can approve upon those numbers that we saw from White Sox center fielders in 2019? And two, what would you consider to be a successful rookie campaign for Robert in 2020? I think that uh, number one, yes, I I'm very confident that Robert can improve on those numbers. Um, but you know, he might take a, a strange route to get there. And you know, that leads into the second question. I think we all saw what happened when Aloy Jimenez was promoted for the first time. And, you know, he got a little bit of a shock when he came up to the major leagues and um, you know, Robert, uh, for, for all I've, you know, heard about what's going on in AAA. I mean, he, he's got a problem with chasing pitches and you know, he's not really getting exposed down there because the pitchers aren't good enough to really consistently beat him. Um, but that might be a problem when he gets up here. And I think that, you know, we, we need to kind of temper our expectations for what he's going to do out of the gate in April and May. Um, so I think that if he had a season offensively that looked similar to Jimenez's stat line, but with maybe more speed, maybe a little less power, and then good defense in center field, I, I think that would be a successful introductory season. I think it would be more valuable ultimately than what Eloy did because um, you know Eloy had bad defense left. Robert could have good defense in center, so there's there's a tremendous value uh, separation there in terms of war. So I think that um, you know successful season for Robert is just being like an average to above average major league player. Uh, he could obviously wind up crushing out of the gate and do better than that. But um, I, I think I'd be happy and excited about his prospects if he shows growth throughout the season and ultimately the net package is average to above average next year. Then let's move over to the mess, and that is right field. White Sox right fielders in 161 games this year hit six home runs, drove in 40 runs, and had a slash line of 220 with a 277 on base percentage and select 288. And before you even ask, yes, that is the league's worst as far as right field production from the Chicago White Sox right fielders in 2019. Just curious, when you say when you say worst, worst all time or just worst 2018 or 2019? <laughs> well, it's worse in 2019. Somebody was doing research about this uh, towards the end of the year, and they, uh, I'm going to have to look up, but the White Sox right fielders were one of the worst position groups, uh, worst performing position groups since 1980. 
And I'm going to have to do some research and follow up with you, Penals, about the White Sox right fielders. But just offensively speaking, they were one of the worst since 1980. So one of the worst position groups out of all the teams in our lifetime, Penals. We witnessed that with the White Sox right fielders. And aren't we lucky? Very lucky. How does Rick Hahn sort out this mess? Because it is a mess. And even if you want to look at the farm system, which last year when we were having this conversation, Penals, we were being optimistic. Hey, the White Sox strength of their farm system is starting pitching and outfielders. Maybe they will have some internal solutions, both in center field with Luis Robert and somebody breaking out of the pack to be the everyday right fielder. And no, that's not going to happen in the end. So what did the White Sox go from here when it comes to right field? Yeah, I think they've, they, at this point they've got to patch the whole external. You know, it's time to take the major league more seriously, and it's not going to have to fill that right field hole right now. They've got to find somebody this offseason. Um, in, in order to get a player good enough, it's going to be somebody who's going to require a multi-year commitment. So, um, you know, all these all these outfield prospects that we were excited about, I, I really think that it's starting to look like if any of them are any good, they might not play for the White Sox major league team. They might be they might be chips to to fill. So I think the White Sox really do need to look hard at right field. I think they need to you know look at look at the Marcelo Zunas of the, of the world and um, you know see if they can bid at that tier and, and try to bring somebody like that in because I, there's really nothing going to get solved if they don't do anything uh, to fill the hole externally. And that was going to be my last question to you to kind of round out this segment because so many White Sox fans and even Rick Hahn mentioned it in his. Uh, postseason press conference that the White Sox are going to be looking at right field externally this upcoming offseason, whether in free agency or trade. Is there what would you be your number one target to help fill in right field for the White Sox in 2020? I think that, uh, you know, more to the, the realistic side of things, Ozuna probably would be my number one target. And it's really just based on the fact that he murders baseballs and base average. And, you know, the BABIP and everything, it, it, he, he was pretty unlucky. Um, and I think that, you know, going forward, he's probably going to produce more than he did in 2019. Um, for that for that reason, he might even be a buy-low candidate. I know that there's some concerns there about the, the arm and the fact that his defense overall in right field isn't all that good. But, I mean, there aren't really any candidates on the free agent market that don't have flaws. Uh, I mean, like someone like Nick, Nick, Nicholas Castellanos, uh, he's – He's not even a right. He's only a right fielder in name. He can't play out there. He's he's a designated hitter. So like you're gonna you're gonna be able to find warts with pretty much anybody that you talk about on the free agent market. And I think Ozuna is a good enough player and he hit the ball hard enough that it will be able to deal with the defense. Well, you can again follow Penals on Twitter. He's at Soxmock underscore Penals. And of course, read his always excellent work on SoxMachine.com as he'll obviously have an offseason plan as he vets out what he would like the White Sox to do this upcoming offseason like the rest of us will. And I'm very excited to see what kind of plans Pinoles will have for the White Sox, White Sox this offseason. Um, but Pinoles, as always, man, thanks for coming on the show and uh, recapping the 2019 Chicago White Sox outfielders. I promise you... One of these years, it will be better. <laughs> well, yeah, I might hold you to that. But uh, thanks for thanks again for having me on, and always love to do it. Coming up next, it's your guys' questions in P.O. Socks.
Do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's as if they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. So what if there are sites annoying and doesn't have the events you want? The real question is, how easy could it be if those ticketing sites actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets at a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand up from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And I use SeatGeek all the time during the White Sox season, and I always go to SeatGeek as well whenever there are other events like Bears games or Chicago Bulls games or Blackhawks games as those regular seasons are about to start. And I always go to SeatGeek first because there's always a price match guarantee. Every stadium seeming to go to digital tickets, it's easy to download the tickets onto your smartphone. Plus, SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web, so they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and when they put them on an interactive seat map have a better understanding of what the view looks like from those seats in making my final decision. The best part is that SeatGeek will get you $10 off your first purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase. Again, that's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed compatible X by gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and also helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And I'm rejoined on the show by Jim Margulis. And before we start answering the P.O. Socks questions, Jim, let's run down your grades for the outfield. And I'm sure they are going to be quite different from everybody else. Uh, let's start with Aloy Jimenez. What grade did you give Aloy for his 2019 rookie campaign? I would give him a B. I think I would give him like maybe a B minus if I were just judging on his overall production, but the shape of it I think matters. And the fact that you know he was hovering around replacement level for a lot of the season then really turned it on in the second half. Defense improved. Uh, the power was there regularly. The plate discipline, plate discipline started improving. It's what you want to see from a guy in his rookie season, if even if it took a bit longer than you'd like to get there. So I'm I'm all in on Elo next season. So yeah, I'll give him a B. How about Louis Garcia? Give him a B minus. Um, again, like I would say C in terms of production for an everyday outfielder, but he's not supposed to be an everyday outfielder. And I don't like it, you know, when it, when it comes to somebody playing uh, above their pay grade and, and forced to... Um, I guess basically forced to adopt the Peter principle on, on uh, behalf of the White Sox. Uh, I, I don't like punishing him too much for that. He did what he could with his, uh, you know, his unique plate approach at the top of the order, his miscast there, but he did well enough and, and gave uh, Jose Bray a lot of runs to drive in and uh, played center field to the best of his ability, stayed healthy enough and played through some stuff to play 140 games. So 
when you look at his expectations entering the season and what you could expect from him, I think he basically did as much as he could. Probably could have done more offensively if he didn't have if he weren't given so much to do. But yeah, I, I think B minus. Uh, C feels any grade that starts with a C feels a little bit too punitive for things that weren't in his control. How about Charlie Tilson? F. How about John Jay? F. How about Daniel Polka? F. How about Ryan Cordell? Probably the best F. The best F. Yeah. How about Nikki Delmonico? F. Okay. Uh, and and you can't spell unfortunate without F. <laughs> Charlie Tilson was removed from the 40-man roster, and he elected free agency. So it looks like that he may try to join another team during the offseason. Uh, John Jay is not coming back to the White Sox. Nikki Delmonico is already not coming back to the White Sox after his injury. Do you see Daniel Polka and Ryan Cordell surviving the 40-man cut? Uh, I I hope they don't. Um, <laughs> nothing personal, but just with the amount of upgrades the White Sox need to do in right field and the outfielders they have coming up, Luis Robert will need a 40-man roster spot at some points. I, I don't want to see the outfield get too clogged, so... I'm going to say, I'm going to be optimistic and say no. All right. So that's the, your outfield grades, which pretty much match up with mine and how everybody else feels about the Chicago White Sox 2019 outfield. And again, everyone will have to come up with suggestions when the Sox machine offseason plans are released, which is going to be very soon. And of course, we'll have a podcast in a couple of weeks as Jim and I share our ultimate master plan on what we would like the White Sox to do in the off season, but let's answer some of your guys' questions in PO socks. So the first question out of the mailbag, Jim comes from our friend, Johan Dabrinsky and Johan is asking, we are two weeks in and still no manager vacancies are filled. Are we going to go into free agency again with at least one team without a manager? I think it, that could happen just because I think there are eight teams who are looking for managers and for a few of them. Like you look at uh, the guys who are, um, under contract or at least, you know, need to work right now, like Joe Espada with Houston and, and, and Carlos Beltran, if people are interested in him with Yankees, you know, they can't be interviewed until after the season and free agency starts, I think three days after the season. So, you know, if, if they want to be interviewed by multiple teams and multiple teams are waiting on those answers, I think it could extend into the uh, regular season. You mentioned Girardi that he got interviewed and uh, you know, he could be somebody who's making the rounds. Joe Madden, I think, is going to be the interesting one just because it looked like he was going to be locked in with the Angels. I, I know that multiple beat writers are saying he interviewed there and looked like the favorite and could be um, settled as, as early as last week. But then this Tyler Skaggs thing happened. Um, yeah. Just uh, and if, if nobody saw it, I'd recommend looking it up because it could have major implications just for how clubhouses handle this. Um, you know, that... Uh, he had, uh, you know, part of his issues with the, um, with his, with his death were, you know, opiates and, um, that they were coming from the clubhouse. And, and when you have painkillers and so many, you know, teams and, and players playing through stuff, you know, it is a population that is at risk for that sort of thing. And, and it could have some league wide implications, but that stuff just broke and it's going to take a, a while for that to untangle. And so if you're Joe Madden and wondering exactly what you're inheriting and, and, and wondering if, you know, there's a situation like, say, Philadelphia that's ready to win now or San Diego that's looking like they're ready to make the jump. You know, they're, it's, you know the Angels' job isn't the best one out there in terms of uh, ready to win now with a fun team. So 
Uh, I could see that being a case where, you know, Madden, even that's where his heart is, that's where he was raised and has a house out there. If it really is a mess and if it's going to take a you know, year or two years to untangle that, um, I could see him going elsewhere and maybe some, some uh, other teams are uh, waiting around on that. But that's going to be, that's going to be tricky. <laughs> and, and there's a, um, yeah, there's really no way to predict what's going to happen just because this is kind of, maybe I wouldn't call it unprecedented because I imagine like the late 70s, early 80s, you know, with, with the cocaine scandal, that there was a lot of, you know, clubhouse-wide issues across the entire league there. But this is going to be, we haven't seen this in a while, and I'm not exactly sure how it'll shake out. Yeah, TJ Quinn of ESPN uh, is doing a great job right now reporting everything that's going on with the Tyler Skaggs investigation as the Skaggs family is suing the Angels for personal loss. And the DEA is also investigating into the manner to see on how Skaggs got a hold of some of these uh, opioids uh, to just track down as uh, there are other major celebrities as well that have passed away in recent years uh, because of this combination. So again, if you want to read up more about it, I highly recommend following TJ Quinn on Twitter and read his stuff in ESPN as he seems to be the one right now doing the best job of uh of being able to find the information, getting that to be shared from the DEA as far as their investigation and the Angels' internal investigation. But I agree with you, Jim. What, what I thought would be a slam dunk hire by the Angels, bringing Joe Madden right away, uh, doesn't seem to be that clear cut because that does seem to be a pretty messy situation right now in Anaheim. So, Johan, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Pete Chapman, and Pete is asking, if you were optimistically looking at the White Sox improving this offseason, Jim, and competing for a playoff spot, which American League playoff team is most likely the team to not be back in 2020, and why? This is a really good question, because when you look at the playoff teams, I think uh, you can... The Yankees look built for years, the Astros look built for years, so that leaves... Oakland, Tampa, and Minnesota. Oakland and you know Tampa, I think, are cut from the same cloth in which they're getting by with um, you know less than impressive payrolls and less than impending, uh, impressive spending capacities. But when you look at their rosters and how deep they are with young talent and and how sound they are defensively and offensively, um, and I think the Rays have the edge in pitching, but they just have a lot of young talent that really isn't going anywhere. They yeah. You know, and the Rays seem to regenerate the the pieces they need offensively. Um, you know, when it comes to non-tendering the guys, they're very aggressive in recycling or cycling through, um, you know, bats. But, um, and then you have the Twins who have built up a lot of stuff uh, or you know, built a lot of their success on free agent signings and just a quick boost of power and have to figure out how to replace guys next year. But, you know, the Indians really uh, are the only impending threat right now in the central and they have to go through a bit of a retooling as well. So, um, yeah, that's, it's a hard sell. I think when it comes to the strength of division and uh, amount of competition they have just in the divisional games, I'm inclined to think that maybe the twins will have a tougher time of getting back just because of the retooling they'll have to do. Yeah, I would say the twins, I think the Rays next year could be a team that could seriously challenge the New York Yankees in the American league East. And we don't know about Boston, right? Boston, as far as what they're going to be trying to do this offseason, maybe mm-hmm. everyone gets gets healthy. I mean, that's a team that could, if everyone's healthy and the starting pitching is actually doing well, 
they could easily win 100 games in 2020 with the amount of talent that they have, even if they do lose J.D. Martinez uh, during this offseason. It's a great question, but yeah, I think out of the five teams, I'd say the Minnesota Twins, but typically in the American League, there's usually two teams that won't be returning next year because of XYZ reasons that are hard to foresee here in October of 2019. But I'm with you on the Twins, Jim. Especially Major League Baseball is going to change the baseball. And if the Twins' power numbers get impacted by that, I mean, that's a great strength that helped them propel to win the American League Central. And I'd like to know on who they're bringing back as far as to fill out the rest of the starting rotation because they're they're losing three of their starting pitchers because they are free agents like Jake Odorizzi uh, and Kyle Gibson. So it'll be interesting to see on how the Twins uh, fill that out. Yeah, Oakland, you know, has similar concerns. Just, you know, they they use the home run a lot offensively. But, um, you know, they didn't have the kind of health year that Minnesota had up until uh, Michael Pineda's uh, suspension and Kyle Gibson had a, uh, I think it was just some, some kind of illness or something like that. It wasn't quite a traditional pitcher injury late in the year. I, figure, I forget exactly what it was, but it wasn't a um, arm-related injury, I don't believe. Um, you know, they had guys who were making, you know, their, their top five starters were making 26 starts apiece. Um, they had that kind of, you know, great healthier up until the very end, and they could more or less coast the rest of the way or had enough talent to get, you know, past the uh, last two to three weeks. But Oakland and, and Tampa, they didn't have perfect health years. They had to scramble a lot, and they proved that they can scramble over the course of a season. So, you know, if Oakland gets, like, Frankie Montas back and uh, the Rays get Blake Snell for a full year and uh, Honeywell and other you know, other guys that they've been missing, you know, they can, you know, they can, uh, they've proven that they can win with, you know, not a whole lot at times. So when they get some of these key players back for a full year, um, you know, they're only going to be deeper theoretically. Right. And you know, with the A's getting AJ puck and Sean Manaya into their starting rotation, maybe Oakland is a team just like Tampa that could seriously challenge the Houston Astros next season in the American league West. But that that's the thing that I need to stress here. Watching the American league postseason is that there is a significant gap between the teams that have aspirations of winning the American League pennant and reaching the World Series and teams that want to pretend or the pretenders, I should say. And it, it is a it's a lot of ground that the White Sox are going to have to gain. And when you just look at the American League Central, I don't think that paints a more an accurate picture and just how strong the top end of the American League East and American League West teams are, Jim. Yeah, it's going to be. And the Indians are a bit weird because they're. Um... Yeah, they, they were eighteen and one. Yeah, they beat up the, the Tigers. Tigers. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, they had some, they had injury issues. They had to deal from depth a little bit to address some, you know, patch some holes in the outfield. And yeah, they uh, that kind of success against the Tigers. And yeah, it's um, I can see them not quite challenging the Twins enough to where the Twins get back in. But uh, if you have to pick one, that seems like the team that's going to have. I, I wouldn't foresee like long term doom for the Twins. I think they just might need a year to retool just to. Um, you know, for, for their internal talent to shake out and, and replace some of the pitchers that they're going to be losing. Well, Pete, thank you so much for your question. Our next question, I think, is also a very interesting one. This one comes from Doug on Twitter. And Doug is asking, Jim, what is the bare minimum in terms of offseason additions you would be satisfied with? Essentially, what would it take at minimum for you to feel okay about the White Sox being marginal playoff contenders next year i think if they could project to like 85 wins 
that would be quite an off season just because they projected for 70 71 wins last off last winter after uh, their their body of work so to improve 15 wins in one winter by projections which are you know i guess conservative by nature that would be pretty impressive and that would mean that they added one to two pitchers uh, who are in the rotation and one to two bats and Moncada and Anderson and, and Eloy project better and Abreu is coming back and they just have uh, you know maybe only two holes in the lineup versus five uh, that would be pretty good and, and if you figure two of those holes are Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal and um, yeah they're going to be doing most of the work uh, that that's probably about as much as you can do without uh, you know running the risk of either blocking players or um, just uh, I guess over adding to the point of um, not being able to solve other issues. So it doesn't matter by position because let's say that the projection models look at the White Sox and because of another year of Jimenez and Mikata and Anderson and bringing back Jose Abreu and Gilito Cease Lopez, the addition of Michael Kopech into the starting rotation and the addition of Luis Robert into the lineup, that the White Sox internally are going to raise their projections from 70 wins to 77 wins in 2020. You are looking or asking for the White Sox to find a way to add eight more wins. Does it matter by position on how they achieve that? Uh, I think it's pretty clear what they need to do. Um, and Rick Hahn, I guess it was so clear that Rick Hahn didn't really avoid talking about it. Right field, DH, couple starting pitchers. Uh, I think they want to go into the regular season not needing Kopech to be fully functional. And in the rotation, I, I think they want to be prepared for him to have a little bit of rust you know, and being able to use AAA, which hopefully is a bit normalized this time around, to uh, work on his command and not need to be, um, you know, not, not not put major league pressure on him right away because he didn't quite, you know, he pitched all right, but he had so many rain-shortened starts and, uh, you know, then he get, his elbow blew out on him and, you know, there just wasn't a way for him to prove that he could uh, stick in the majors even if, uh, you know, it wasn't his fault. So uh, when it comes to the season ahead, I think the White Sox would like to protect against, you know, or at least have five starters not named Kopech. So when Kopech is ready, uh, they can either an injury will accommodate it or failure or just have six starters and move somebody else to the bullpen if you need wins. Yeah, maybe someone like Wade Miley. I know we joked about it last year, but Wade Miley may be better suited to be that six starter type where he could fill in as your starter, but he could also... Be someone that could be acting as an opener, Jim. Pitch the first three innings of a game if need be. Yeah, just a way to scramble, a way to avoid Dylan Covey being part of the uh, rotation once again. I think that's really, uh, when you see Covey making so many starts and Detweiler making so many starts, I think uh, that's the reason why you add two starters. And um, yeah, Miley, I guess, would be a good example you want to avoid, I think, uh, the Irvin Santanas in the second spot, like the uh, yeah. the guys who are at the end of their their line, and and you're just hoping for a little bit of a dead cat bounce, and they they come back and maybe give you two starts before falling apart. I think you want to avoid that tier, shop a tier above it for the second starter, and have somebody who you don't feel bad about handing a job for three months, even if he might only be needed for one or maybe only a couple of weeks. 
And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week in P.O. Socks. And if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future edition of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And you can help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. Again, we're still providing additional content, even though we're slowing down a little bit. Uh, we're still writing every single day, and we're still doing the weekly podcast through the month of October. And we have the one podcast in November to recap the happenings from the GM meetings, and then the podcast in December uh, to recap as far as the winter meetings and what is going on out in San Diego come in December. So again, if you really enjoy our work and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And one note, one note about that too, is that uh, when the Socks Machine podcast goes on hiatus, uh, PO Socks turns into a Patreon only post every week. Awesome. That's very exciting. So yeah, if you like to continue to ask questions and you want Jim to provide his insight, because I'm sure there are going to be things definitely happening during the offseason every single week that you guys will have questions about. Sign up, patreon.com slash Machine today. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you to P. Knowles for joining the show to recap the Chicago White Sox outfielders. I know that it's a little bit of a chore for how poorly they played <laughs> this season, so I'm greatly appreciative that he joined the show to do that with us. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to our show in a variety of ways. One is Apple Podcasts, another is Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.